From the Spec Network, this is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. Before we kick off today's show, I want to take a quick moment and thank Rollbar for sponsoring the show. Dealing with errors suck. You have this new feature that's hitting only a subset of users, but you're somehow running into a problem and you can't really ask your users to give detailed report because let's be honest, A, it's hard for users to actually give a detailed report that could help you as a developer and B, more importantly, don't do that. Don't ask your users to give you an error. You should be able to collect that information on your own. And if you're wondering how, Rollbar is a library that can help with that. They work with all the major languages and frameworks. Android, iOS, even the backend, Rails, Ruby, all of it. We use them at Instacart and we rely pretty heavily on this to report good errors. They recently did a complete overhaul of their new Java SDK for both Android and the Java library. And it's all on GitHub. I'll add a link to the show notes. You can hop on over, browse GitHub, try it out, see some of the examples. Look through their code and you know what? If you see something that you think jumps out or that they can do better, go ahead and let them know. You can maybe even open a GitHub issue in there and tell them uh, how stuff can be changed. With Rollbar, you can start tracking your production errors just in minutes. Head on over to rollbar.com slash fragmented and you can get their bootstrap plan for free. Make sure to use our special link, rollbar.com slash fragmented, and they'll know you came from us. And it'll help support the show. Thanks again, Rollbar. In this episode, we talk with the prolific Jake Wharton about Kotlin, the styles, how these things were developed, and everything around Kotlin. It's very interesting. And uh, as always, every conversation that we have with Jake is just fascinating. Uh, He's full of knowledge, great insights, and uh, we really hope you enjoy it. Take a listen and get your Kotlin on. No need to beat around the bush anymore. Let's go ahead and welcome back Jake Orton. Welcome to the show once again. Thanks for having me again. Jake, so you're now over, I mean, I think the last time we spoke to you, you were over at Square, but now, where are you working now? I work for a small startup in the Valley called <laughs> Google. So you're now at Google. Are you, do you work uh, on the Android team, on the Android platform? What do you do at Google now? Uh, yeah, I work on the the Android framework team. And specifically, I'm working on anything and everything related to figuring out how to make the Kotlin programming language um, as useful as it can be for building Android apps. So, Jake, one of your most recent uh, releases was about the Android Kotlin guides. And we figured uh, we should definitely talk about the Kotlin guides because there's so many interesting aspects around it. Uh, So we thought we'd try to pick your brains a little on like the Android Kotlin guides. How does that sound today? Yeah, that sounds good. We probably should preface this. The guides is very extensive and folks should definitely go through and there are a lot of very interesting aspects. Uh, But believe it or not, Jake's only motive is not to come on Fragmented and speak to us. He has other things to do as well. So we're not going to keep him here for too long. We just wanted to bring out some of the interesting aspects of the Kotlin guides. And so we'll try to cover some of the things that at least stood out for us. And we'll try to mm-hmm. pick Jake's brains on some of those. Sound like a plan, Don? Sounds good to me. I mean, I was really hoping we were going to cover it line by line, Kaushik, but I I, got, I understand we all got to get some stuff done now. Hey, that's fine by me. <laughs> Jake here probably may not agree with that idea. <laughs> <completely>. <laughs> 
No, I cleared the rest of my week. Oh, <laughs> we're good to go. All right. So, Jake, is the is this style guide that that has been published, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, is this kind of the de facto style guide for Kotlin or maybe kind of what was the whole, the reason that the style guide was created? What was the, maybe the motive even? Yeah, so there's, I think, really two, two reasons behind it. Um, the first was that, you know, Android has never really had a style guide for non-Google developers. So there's historically been the AOSP style guide, which is for engineers writing code inside of AOSP. And it's the one that has very infamous rules that really nobody outside of AOSP should be using. So, so the idea behind it was to actually have a, have a style guide that, you know, the regular app developer could look to, to style their code and to how, you know, how to structure these new Kotlin files. But the, the other interesting aspect of it is that, you know, Android has been around for 10 years and a lot of these applications that people are building are, are already existing code bases that have a ton of Java code in them. And so we also wanted to put something out there that talked about how you can author both Kotlin and Java code such that they can coexist in the same project without feeling really awkward uh, when you're calling into, uh, you know, calling into Java from Kotlin or calling into Kotlin from Java. That makes sense. Just touching on an aspect that you brought up. So this is, uh, you've uh, called it the Android Kotlin guides, right? Is there any specific reason why it's not just the Google Kotlin guides? Because Google does have like a Java style guide, right? Which is, I mean, extremely famous and probably one of the most adhered to guides right now. So uh, why the Android Kotlin guides versus just, you know, maybe the Google Kotlin guides? So yeah, the this Kotlin guide is is actually very heavily influenced by the the Google Java style guide. Um you'll see you'll see a lot of the rules are essentially copied verbatim. Uh and that's that's because, you know, Google has a, a massive uh corpus of experience of writing Java code and understanding what works, what doesn't, how things should be styled. Uh, what patterns you should use. And so that that was a great resource to pull from. But the reason that it's currently Android-specific um, is that, at least at present, uh, the only Kotlin code that is going to be authored at Google will be for Android. And I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, I don't think that's forever. At least I hope it's not forever. And I'll be doing every part uh, that I can to to make that not true in the future. Um but at least for now, uh, we wanted to get something out there very quickly because Android is the platform which is really diving headfirst into this language, at least from Google's perspective. Uh, and so I think it was important to make sure that the guide felt like it was actually tailored for Android development rather than being something a bit more general. I'm not sure about this one, but does JetBrains also have like an official style guide? And if they did, did you happen to like draw something from there? What was the process around like resolving both the Google and the JetBrains style guides or like, you know, just the guides in general? Yeah, so they, they do have one. And uh, we did have a, er, like an early preview of it while we were developing the, the Android one. Uh, and it was a very conscious effort to not write anything in the Android one that would deviate uh, or, or cause conflict with the rules that they had in theirs. So if you write Kotlin code following the Android style guide, that code will be perfectly valid in JetBrains style as well. Fantastic. Now, the the opposite of that is not exactly true. There are some 
some of the uh, styles that JetBrains has chosen, which are a little bit more flexible. Uh, and the reason that the Android one is a bit more specific and a bit more restrictive is, again, going back to that um, world where there's two, lang- two source code languages that you might be interacting with, both Java and Kotlin. And so we want to make sure that the Kotlin code you're writing feels correct from both of those languages, whereas um, the JetBrains one can be a bit more optimistic about the future where there's a Kotlin-only you know, it's just Kotlin-only code bases. Um, but really, they don't fundamentally differ in, in any way. It's just really small um, rules that are occasionally a bit more specific. And the huge advantage, I guess, with that is more likely than not when folks are writing Kotlin code today and they do like an auto-format in their IDE, in all likelihood, it'll adhere to like the JetBrains style guide, right? Which means we get the benefit of it, of having, uh, by and large, a conforming code base to begin with. Yeah, one of the things that they talked about at at KotlinConf a few weeks ago was that um, actually the IntelliJ platform currently doesn't support enough syntactic rules for actually formatting Kotlin code Mm -hmm. in a way that meets the style guide. Uh, But they did say that that's something that they're going to work on adding here in the future. And so uh, hopefully very shortly we'll have a um, a version of the Kotlin plugin that will actually be able to format the code just exactly as the style guide recommends. Oh, wow. That's cool. So now, when you went about going down the path of deciding to build the style guide, one of the things that's always interested me is the platform in which folks just determine how they're going to present the material. Is it going to be, of course, it's going to be on the web because we want everyone to access it, but how did you go about building this? Was it something you just kind of threw up in Google Docs or did you decide to just, you know, manually craft some HTML? Did you use some other type of, you know, uh, API documentation tool, or what's the method in which you decided to to write the this actual documentation, and what tools did you use? Yeah, so from very early on, when we were talking about you know building this resource and and other resources in the future, um, we really placed an emphasis on trying to do as much of it in the open as possible. And so um, you know while the guide started with a Google Doc and, and going through some internal review of various stakeholders. And, and uh, there's something called the API Council, kind of just going over these rules. Uh, we, we knew that we wanted it to end up somewhere where the community could not only easily access it, but also easily contribute to it. And so, like, one of the, one of the problems with the, maybe not problems, but one of the difficulties with a lot of the guides that are on the uh, developer.android.com website is that they're they're you're unable to easily contribute to them, and so the decision was made to put this on GitHub because that's where a large majority of developers are comfortable contributing to projects and they're familiar with the workflow. And so once you decide to have something on GitHub, there's you know a few things that kind of fall out from that. You know, GitHub offers a easy hosting service. They have this yeah. tool called Jekyll. Uh, and actually, we took inspiration from another, uh, the Android um, testing website used to be hosted on GitHub. And so we were able to reuse a lot of the work that they had already done and just really fill in the new content. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I when I saw the Jekyll thing, especially when you see the contribution part, I figured it was like more of your touch. Because your website, jakewarden.com, does use like a static HTML generator of sorts, right? Yeah, it's basically uh, basically the same thing, actually. Very cool, very cool. Since we're talking about the process of coming up with the guide right now, right? 
part of the challenge which uh, with co- with coming up with something like a style guide is sometimes there aren't necessarily that many logical reasons right part of it is just preference it boils down in the end to just preference right so was that a problem how did you deal with that you know it's definitely hard because the language is i mean the language isn't super new but in the timeline of languages it's relatively new mm-hmm. and so i did spend a lot of time looking at existing code bases so you know obviously the Kotlin um, repository itself has a ton of Kotlin code in it. And there are other large code bases that you can find on GitHub that uh, are, have just a ton of source files written in Kotlin. And so I, I spent a lot of time just surveying code that was already out there and even code that I had written in the past as well to try and get a feel for what was uncontroversial, right? what everyone just sort of naturally did. And then things that were, um, you know, made sure to outline things that were a bit more controversial or, or maybe not even controversial, but just that, that differed slightly from every single code base. The hotly contested sort of topics. Uh, sort of yeah, exactly. Um, and those usually came down to, you know, Kotlin syntactically has some very complex parts. Uh, I think of like the, if you have a, if you're declaring a class and that class has a primary constructor, the amount of like keywords and, and metadata that you can pack into just that that first line <laughs> of a true. class yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, oh, is a ton of things. And so figuring out how to format that in the you know hundreds of permutations of uh, of bits that you can include in that declaration, that was like challenging. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, thankfully people had been, whether they knew it or not, they've been figuring this out since they had started writing Kotlin, because ultimately when you're writing it, you have to make a decision. Uh, and also we had the, again, the benefit of the um, people at JetBrains were also working on their style guide in parallel and receiving feedback on it. And so it actually wasn't too difficult to narrow down on what the more um, controversial syntactic formatting elements should be. As you you rightfully said, you know, there's some difficult areas that you had to encounter. What were some of the most difficult calls that you did have to make when you were developing this guide? I mean, one of the ones that I know that's probably very difficult for you was the fact that you had to use spaces instead of tabs, because I know you're a big tabs guy, right? (laughs) Oh, I am. Yeah, huge tabs fan for sure. (laughs) Full time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that one, you know, that one... It was difficult for me, but not for the reasons that, uh, you know, it wasn't an actual difficult problem. Uh, ultimately, JetBrains was going with four spaces in their style yeah. guide. And so mm-hmm. it, it would be a needless deviation in order to do something different, despite the fact that I prefer two spaces. You know, there's no point in deviating just for something so so trivial. Does the two spaces come from some of the other scripting type of languages? Because I think the Google Java guide is also four spaces, right? If I remember uh, correctly. No, the Google Java one is actually two spaces. Oh, which is probably what makes it a little tricky, I guess. Yeah, so that, uh, you know, that was where I had initially learned two spaces. And then when I joined Square... Uh, the, their entire code base was all two spaces as well. And so once you get over that like day or two of uncomfortable uh, uncomfortability of, you know, much more condensed, horizontally spaced code, 
Once you go back to four, it just seems like everything is so far apart. That's what I say. When you must have looked at your code for the first few first few days of moving over to four, it must have felt so awkward just seeing everything just spread out horizontally. Yeah. I mean, the, when you do like a line wrap and it's indented eight spaces. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's the other one. That's the like, one that's That really... just looks like a mile to me. <laughs> yeah, or, or a kilometer for our international listeners. <laughs> that's right. There you go. What the hell is a mile? <laughs> So going into the specifics of the guide, initially when I saw the guide, I thought it was actually interesting. And I was like, wait, why are we unnecessarily complicating this, right? You split it primarily into two parts, the uh, primary style guide and then the interop guide. It's only when I actually went through each part individually that I realized this was actually like a super smart move, right? Uh, could you talk a little about that aspect of it? Like why even have an interop guide? Uh, because... I mean, you know, most other style guides don't have this thing called like an interop guide. So uh, how did you come up with that decision? Uh, was it basically an organic one? Did you start off like by building the style guide and realizing, hey, there are a lot, a lot of these parts which require like specifically the interop. And so we'll break that out. What, what was your process there? Yeah, when when I started looking at it, there were a few categories of recommendations that were that were falling out. The first was hard rules, like four spaces, not two spaces. Like that is a hard rule that's very easy to follow. And it's also something that can be enforced by a tool. Right, right. And so the the style guide aims to have rules that are unambiguous and can potentially be enforced or even um, formatted by an automated tool. And so everything you see in there, it should be, you know, deterministic, unambiguous. It should have a, just a single way of doing something. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. The interop guide is uh, a little bit of a step back from that, where you have to you have to think a bit about what you want. Um, and again, the, just having the interop guide, it, it goes back to the fact that we expect people to have mixed source uh, code bases for quite some time. And also, you know, I'm a library developer, and so uh, I, you have a soft spot for for writing uh, writing kind of recommendations for how to build APIs that end up working in both languages. Um, but there's even there's even more beyond that. Um, so, like right now, there's only the style and the interop guide. But I think there's even another step back, which is a bit more like best practices or patterns. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are, you know, those are super subjective. Like you just have to have to read one and then determine whether or not you want to apply it to a particular part of your code. And so I'm hoping in the future we can collect a good amount of those best practices and, and kind of design patterns and add them as like a third part of the guides. Um, but honestly, there just weren't enough at the time to warrant including it. And also, we wanted to get something out there sooner rather than wait. Um, but that's that's sort of the distinction is that the style guide is meant to be hard rules. The interop guide is, there's still rules, but there's still a bit of uh, interpretation kind of based on how you want the API to be designed. And then uh, hopefully in the future, we'll have something which is like those best practices as well which is just uh, things that you can decide whether or not you want to apply. Essentially, you're after a, a collection of folks have actually dealt enough with this, you want to come up with essentially effective Kotlin, 
right, for all practical purposes? Yeah, to some degree, to a lesser degree. I mean, thankfully, the language itself really means that we don't need such a a heavy uh, set of, you know, <laughs> like effective rules because it, the language was designed around, or at least to some degree designed around those problems from the Java language. Um, but yeah, you know, it's... Uh, there's still patterns and best practices that should be documented and, and put out there and a place that's easy to discover. So let's maybe step into the actual guide. What we yeah. probably want to do at this point is like maybe just highlight some of the things that at least stood out for us. Uh, obviously, like we mentioned before, we're not necessarily going to go through every single thing. Uh, right at the beginning, one of uh, the things you talk about is like structure, right? And the thing that stood out for me per se is like the use site targets, right? Uh, A, I didn't actually know what it was called. I didn't know it was actually called use site targets. Uh, uh, and also like, you know, the choice there. So could you tell us a little about that aspect of it? Yeah. So the, I mean, the use site targets are something that's essentially required for the language because again, there's so much uh, the the syntax allows you to compact so much into a relatively terse set of characters mm -hmm. uh, that sometimes you need to be a little bit more specific about where an annotation is targeted. Uh, and so for the, the yeah the structure part of the document, we talk about the the file use site target uh, as being the first thing, which allows you to control control how a a construct in Kotlin is actually viewed from uh, the the Java side, and so because Kotlin allows you to define things like top level functions um, and uh, top level properties inside a file, when you view those from say a Java you know source file, there's no construct that allows you to reference those. They you know and then Java everything has to be inside of a class, mm -hmm. and so the, um, yeah, the file use site targets basically allow you to control the name of the class that the Java code sees. And it also allows you to do some really clever things like merging all of the top-level declarations in one package into a single uh, a single class. Yeah, and this was the part that was brilliant. I had no clue this thing even existed. Um, Me either. I was at KotlinConf, and I think you mentioned this in your presentation, Jake, but it's also obviously in the style guide. Specifically, the ones, the annotations you're talking about is like, you know, the file JVM name, which is probably something that most people who have like uh, dealt with enough Kotlin have run into. But the one that I've actually never heard before is the file JVM multi-file class. And essentially, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, what this allows us to do is you can have different Kotlin files like sprayed all over in different places. But if they uh, logically seem to belong to the same class, you can mark them with the same class. So the classic example is if you have extensions or something, instead of the automatic class file generated uh, with the KTE suffix, you can basically group them into the common thing. So when you consume them in Java, they're all under, they appear to be under the same class. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that also touches on the, I believe this is also mentioned in the interop guide as well, where when you're, you know, when you're writing Kotlin code that has these top level declarations, you want to give it a name that feels correct from, or for people consuming it from Java rather than the automatically generated name, which is basically just the file name plus KT. Perfect. And you, I think you have an example. Can you tell, uh, what was the example that you mentioned? Uh, I thought, uh, wait, uh, off nullable. In the, right? Yeah, in the, in the talk, I, um, I talked about an extension function, 
which took a nullable type in Kotlin and wrapped it in an optional type. Got it, got it, got it. And so this extension function was defined as a top-level function in the file, you know, optional.kt. Right, right. And so if you were consuming that from Java code, it would be optional capital KT dot the function name, which is a weird last name <laughs> to be referencing. It's leaking the implementation detail of the language that you wrote it in. And what you really want to do is give it a, you know, a more semantically correct name like optionals, uh, which is that, you know, like you pluralize with, uh, you pluralize the class name when it's just static methods. And so that's what these use site target annotations allow you to do. Because initially it wasn't just about the aesthetics of having that ugly KT being added. It's about leaking implementation details about like the language, right? Which I think, uh, I mean, folks who consume your library, if they see a KT, they know, oh, this part is written in Kotlin. And that's information that they don't necessarily need to know per se, right? And you may also not realize that the file name becomes part of the public API as a result of that. True. If you if you rename the file because you want to call it something else. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. You might break everyone consuming it from Java. Yikes. I did not even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. One of the other things that I found pretty interesting inside of the interop guide is there's a section where you talk about logical ordering and and what we mean by that is like the logical order of a file contents. So if you're going to add a new method traditionally, or a lot of times folks will just take that method and just slap it at the end of the file. That's just where it goes. Um, personally, it's not what I do, but there, as it states in the style guide, there needs to be some type of actual logical order that should be followed. Maybe you should be grouping things that are related together. Maybe you should be putting things at the top that are in a certain way. And it states in there that if it's being developed by a, maybe a library maintainer or somebody like that, you can ask them and they should be able to explain here is the logical ordering that we're following. Um, now, some of those examples uh, are maybe like companion objects and so forth. I'd love to get your thoughts on what you know a good logical order is or do you follow a rule of thumb when you're building a new file or adding something to a file, how do you determine where you should add these things inside of a file to keep it logical? Yeah, what is logical order, right? How, how do I know what my logical order is? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, well, this is a part that in the style guide was shamelessly stolen from the Google Java style guide. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, good, I just though, really yeah. like yeah, how yeah, well yeah. it's worded. and um, <laughs> But yeah, the, the general idea is that, you know, if you open a source file that you've never seen before, and you need to understand what's going on inside of it. You should be able to read it, read the you know the the constructs inside of it, whether it's functions, properties, types, from top to bottom, and get a, a relatively clear picture of what's happening. And so it's it's almost similar to how you would think of structuring, you know, a story. You don't want you don't want uh, you don't want to just alphabetize everything because if you alphabetize, say the chapters of a story, the order would make no sense. What you want is that the things that are at the top to be the most important, and those are usually things like how you, if it's a type, how you create the type. So the primary constructor or secondary constructors or any static uh, factory methods. And then you have things usually like public methods and public properties will be below that. And then as you go farther and farther down the file, you run into, you know, implementation details and private constants, things that aren't really exposed outside of the file. 
And so that's generally how I structure things. But um, yeah, the most important part to take away from this section is that there is no one true order. Uh, if you have a file where the most important aspects of it are the, the constants inside of it, then you know slam that companion object way up at the top and put the constants there with good documentation. And then things like you know the functions and properties can be below it. But if you just have private constants that are implementation details that are just there to make the internal code more clear, then there's no reason for them to be the first thing that someone sees when they open that file. And so throw them way down at the bottom where if someone needs to refer to them, they can use their IDE to jump down and see what the values are. That makes sense. And we'll actually drop a link to one of the GitHub issues, which actually talks about the companion object there, right? I believe someone raised the thing, oh, well, hey, how how do we decide where to put the companion object? And you explain this process. And yeah, it made perfect sense. Like once you see that and then you try to understand this logical order, it just makes you know uh, so much more sense. Yeah, it's it's a bit funny because, you know, the style guide is meant to be these hard rules that you can follow. Mm-hmm. And the rule here is that there is no rule. <laughs> <laughs> playing a matrix kind of thing here. <laughs> yeah. But I mean if you if you were to impose some sort of really strict ordering, it's going to wind up with classes that are hard to hard to parse because the order winds up harming your ability to understand what's going on. Yeah, and I think it's important to have a good logical order because I've as a, as a consultant I walk into a lot of companies and I see some code bases and sometimes I'll open up that source file again that I have no never seen before. And things are just scattered everywhere. I'll have public constants at the bottom. They'll have a constructor randomly placed in the middle of a file. And there's just, it's one of those things And immediately you have to hop in, or at least I do, and start reorganizing. Okay, we're putting these constructors at the top. Let's put these, stat, you know, these static things here, these factories, et cetera, just so there's some level of organization. So you're familiar when you hop into the file that you know where some things are at. And it's a, I think it's a big win, especially if you're on a team too, because then you can kind of follow the same pattern and it's just, you know, there's less context switching going on and you don't get as frustrated. So let me ask both of you, when you encounter a code base, right, or you have to deal with the legacy part of the code that doesn't necessarily adhere to uh, the style guide or like, you know, or the code style guide that everyone on your team now believes uh, is the right one, right, per se. And this is also assuming you don't have something like, uh, you know, an auto formatter or like the Google Java guide. How do you go about it? Do you just put up a PR first, just reformatting the thing? Or do you also include that with your PR changes anytime you touch this file? What is your strategy being around that? For me, I think it depends on the the size of the file. Oh, interesting. If uh, If it's small enough that the changes I'm making significantly impact like most of the lines, then I'll just go ahead and reformat the whole file. Um, but if but if all I'm doing is changing, you know, a few lines in a multi-hundred line file, then uh, I think it's absolutely more valuable to just adhere to the incorrect style so that someone coming in, basically, I, I like the idea of a source file not being able to be interpreted as how many people have worked on it. <laughs> like it it should nice. just look like a single person wrote every single source file. And so if I'm if I'm contributing to something where, you know, they're using tabs, God forbid, or Hungarian <laughs> notation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, then it's it's more beneficial to the code base to adhere to the style 
than it is for you to adhere to your, you know, ideals of syntactic formatting. But do you then go back and then change it? Like, you know, in an independent PR or no? Do you just let it be? I guess it would depend on whether it was my code base, someone else's code base. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't want to be that person that's sending <laughs> PRs, reformatting the entire project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to be fair, I have done this in the past. I have been that person. But it was when we were trying to add like Google Java format, you know, where we were enforcing it. So... Uh, yeah, notice was given well in advance, everyone, that we're going to have like this terrible thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah I mean, if, if you've agreed upon that you're going to be doing that, then it makes total sense. But if you're just contributing to a project blind and reformatting entire files, it's it's not a great experience for the person who's reviewing that code. Alrighty, So let's move on to this other thing. So uh, how do I put this? This is sort of a simple argument like the whole style guide around braces right but one thing that i that at least caught my attention and i'm curious if this was something that you thought about as well when you were coming about uh building this guide right if i recall correctly uh typically like the google java uh guide is like hey just put the braces don't try to be funny with like you know you're collapsing your if statements and doing anything in the kotlin style guide at least there you do there are specific places where it's okay to have everything in one line uh but and the reason at least it does make sense in kotlin is because kotlin is was built to be a sort of like clean and inherently i don't want to use the word terse but in some ways it was like a language that was made like you know just these like convey the information in uh, like in a minimal sort of way right did you you could have gone that out saying, hey, no, just don't do one line. Like always have like, you know, open, have the braces, have it like done in our typical KNR style. Was that something that you had to think about or no? Was it like pretty straightforward? I mean, you're on the right track. Uh, I definitely, I definitely thought about how the language tends to favor smaller constructs. And if, if you just have, you know, an if and return, um, then why not put it on a single line? But actually, the thing that really put this one over the edge for me, because I, I definitely prefer the explicit braces almost everywhere, um, the thing that put it over the edge for me was the fact that in Kotlin, these these language constructs are can be used as expressions themselves. And so you can have you know a, a value that you're assigning, and on the right-hand side of the equals, you can have an if-else statement. And if you require braces for those constructs, that turns a one-line uh, a one-line assignment into a five-line assignment. Right, and this is because you add the braces, then you have the return statement, and then you have to again add braces for like within the if else uh, exactly essentially right. And so yeah, I mean there has to be a bit of uh, judgment here on your part. I mean ultimately, just you know, no, no matter how specific these rules are you still need to use a bit of judgment as to what's the most readable but um yeah it it felt overly restrictive to be requiring braces in every single use of an if statement when you have things like the ability to use them as expressions that makes sense and especially since like i believe like even the JetBrains folks like with kotlin they do in some ways encourage it right at least like from the books i've seen and like if the language allows it there's probably there was some thought put into it i presume yeah that's at least that's my hope now i've also noticed that there is a a column limit 
that has been uh, instituted. I think that's at 100 characters. Is that correct? Is there uh, any specific reason why it's 100 characters? Any uh, Anything like that? Um, nothing, nothing really beyond the fact that it's what was already being used, and it's also what the Google Java Style Guide is using. Um, we just, you know, as much as possible, I tried to adhere to the things that they were doing where it made sense, and that was one that just seemed like it didn't really necessitate changing it. Were there any ones that were just like, oh, if only I could change this. Like, you know, I know this is what the style guide uses, but if only I could change these to be something else and we live in this brave new world. Were any of were there any decisions like those that you had to like encounter? It wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean honestly the spaces thing was the the hardest one for me to get over. <laughs> um, I was I was tempted to, you know, plant my flag and draw my line in the sand and and you know, die on that hill <laughs> fighting for two spaces. Um, but yeah, you know, ultimately there's a degree of pragmatism here where you just have to kind of, despite my own opinion, get get over yourself and do what's do what's going to be best for everyone. And and um, yeah, so and even I'm sure there were other instances where things came up that you know I I disagreed with or someone disagreed with. But um, when you realize that you want to adhere to what JetBrains is doing with their guide, and you want it to feel uncontroversial when someone reads it. That you, it's very easy to make the the pragmatic decision and just go with what's uh, what's already being done or what's already well established. All right. So another aspect uh, of the guide is where you uh, line breaking and line wrapping per se. Right. Uh, I want to call this out. You mentioned this thing called always break at a higher syntactic level. Right. Can you explain this for folks who don't necessarily understand uh, what that means? Because, again, this is one of those things, I feel this is one of those rules that would help aid you in, uh, you know, when in doubt kind of a situation, right? But uh, could you explain what uh, what do you, what is meant by the higher syntactic level? In yeah, the so again, this is one that was stolen from the Java style guide. Uh, and they actually have, they actually have a, a few examples in their their guide, and I, I don't think we actually copied over the examples. Um, but the idea here is that when you're when you're performing line breaking, you don't want to break apart something that's um, like the smallest aspect of the line. So just just to take an example, if you have um, if you're calling a function, and that function takes two arguments, and in order to get those arguments, you are calling other functions which also take arguments. And so uh, this is this is kind of hard to explain over over audio. It's much easier with with visuals, but um the idea here is that you if you're going to have to perform line breaking, you want to keep the the inner function calls and their arguments together and you want to do line breaking between those two. So moving the second function call down to the a new line instead of perhaps taking you know two of the arguments to the last function call and performing the line break there the idea is that you know instead of breaking the innermost function call you move up a syntactic level to the outer function call and break its arguments got it okay actually that makes so much more sense now even when i read the guide i i was getting a little caught up in the language but now when you gave the example about those functions this makes a lot more sense it's almost like 
Huh, I, actually, this makes so much more sense now, even with like, you know, the assignment, because there is that aspect about if it's an assignment operator versus a non-assignment operator, right? And if you take it, if you read it by each letter, it makes sense. But it's one thing I found tricky, at least, was like, oh, I don't actually understand when, like, you know, if I had to look at a piece of code, I wouldn't know what the default is. So then I had to like read through. But now that you put it with the example of the function, it makes sense. And I Imagine the same thing applies like even with classes or like, you know, calls where if they are grouped, if they make sense together, like the constructs make sense together, then they stick together, I guess, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And if you mentioned that um, you use the Google Java format tool for your Java code, uh, you may notice that when it wraps something, it, it, it wraps very eagerly at a higher level than at sort of like a more nested level. And that's basically this rule going into effect. And so it, it may wind up using more vertical lines than you think it should have. But the reason it's doing that is because it's trying to keep the nested uh, expressions together. Together. Oh, that makes so much sense, actually, now that I think about it. I have, yeah, sometimes I was like, wait, no, that doesn't seem right. That seems a little weird, but whatever. I guess the formatter decided that was the one. Oh, that makes a lot more sense now. Wanted to touch for a second on the the topic in the style guide of, of expression functions, and I find this uh, interesting. I'm glad that it's in the style guide because I've seen it abused quite a bit here. And expression functions, just for folks who aren't familiar, are those statements where maybe you have a a boolean value that says "Is the customer a platinum customer?" and maybe that's just a flag that is a you know a true or false flag. And if that's the case, you could just say you know is you know platinum customer and it says equals and then whatever that flag is and you can kind of one line that all together and that's the expression function uh in a high level so it makes it really easy and concise but however i've noticed some folks who take the expression and start you know maybe your logic is much more complex to determine whatever the customer type is and you need to perform all these different checks and i've seen that kind of wrap into multiple lines and from what i can tell the style guide is deterring folks from doing that saying if it does start requiring wrapping you should use a normal function body you know put some braces on there and typical line wrapping rules would apply uh, is that the kind of the stance that that you believed as well that as you feel very strongly about yeah that's generally what that rule is targeting uh, is the the tendency to once you realize that you can make expression functions that you want to make everything an expression <laughs> function Yes, and I, I actually don't think this rule is is perfectly worded. Uh, you know, I I we iterated on this wording quite a bit, and I still don't think it's perfect. But um, you perfectly captured what we're trying to convey, which is that you know sometimes it's easier for readability to just have a normal function body and have expressions, multiple expressions in that function body, rather than trying to be cute and have everything a single a single chain of functions <laughs> that's a single return expression that you can then make an uh, expression body. Well, you know, Kotlin has a bunch of things that Java doesn't have equivalents for, so we had to come up with our own wording. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it probably went through... Each of these rules was uh, iterated on quite a few times to try and get the language right. And what, one of the things actually that I think is, is most important is the, you know, the reason that this is on GitHub is because we want people to be able to contribute 
And so if there's an ambiguity or the wording is um, incorrect or not conveying the right thing, uh, I mean, we're, we're just normal people over here and, and I don't uh, profess the being perfect. And so please, please, please like contribute um, any fixes. We actually, as soon as we launched the guide, we had a ton of people contribute um, both syntactic and typo fixes that were uh, all over the guide because it's just a ton of text and uh, it can be hard figuring out the right words to both convey the point and also make make these rules as unambiguous as possible. Right, right, right. I had a quick uh, follow-up with respect to that. Is there like a regular cadence to when the actual uh, Jekyll-generated site is built? Because I noticed some of the typos, because when I was going through the guide, I noticed I was like, oh, I should probably like send in a PR for that. But I realized some of these were already changed. Uh, in master is there like a regular cadence that you're thinking that it'll get republished or something yeah we're hoping that it doesn't have to be too frequent that it will stabilize um obviously yeah there were a bunch of fixes for things like typos and and minor grammatical errors um i actually had meant to to publish it yesterday uh but um i'm trying to i'm i'm, I'm thinking that it will be maybe once every two or three weeks uh, ultimately, I hope that you know we we actually don't have to publish it that frequently that it that it stabilizes. Um, but it's kind of going to be you know ad hoc as things are needed. And so since there were a bunch of contributions last week, um, you know the week after KotlinConf, that I would like to publish those and get those out there um, as soon as possible. So definitely uh, within the next few days here. Although if you're listening to this, it, it's hopefully already out there. Um, but yeah, once once those get in, um, unless there's anything that that comes up, uh, it'll probably be on the order of every every few weeks. And the reason is that we we really just don't want to overwhelm people with changes. Uh, I like the idea of having the changes batched into every few weeks, and then we're also going to have a change log where you can actually see what rules have changed, so that you don't have to be reading the whole thing every time and trying to figure out what actually was different in the new version. So at least if you see, if it's like a typo, then you don't have to necessarily worry about changing your world. But if it's like a rule, exactly right. you probably want to keep an eye out for that. Another topic I want to touch on is like the use of annotations uh, as recommended by the style guide. For example, for member or type annotations, it's mentioned, put it in separate lines. Annotation without arguments can be placed on a single line. So an example would be, uh, what's an example? Like inject, uh, non-null or something which don't have arguments. They can all be in the same line, on an independent line, but on the same line. But if it was a single annotation without, uh, I mean, sorry, with arguments, in that case, they have, they stand on a like independent line. I might be getting some of this wrong, so folks should basically look at the style guide. But I was curious, like, how was how much of that was just basically, oh, this reads better versus, because you can always take the alternative which is like hey in order to make this simple every annotation on an independent line let's just keep it like that right uh, how much of was that something that you had to like think about or was it did this read better or or actually i'm not even i don't remember what uh, the google java guides say was it like adapted from there uh, what are your thoughts on that um yeah i mean well you hit on one of the the important cases there which is at inject uh, another big one would also be the test annotation. 
for tests. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some of this wording actually comes from the, the JetBrains version of the guide. Um, and yeah, it really just goes back to the fact that frequently you have just a single no argument annotation and it see, I don't know, it, it feels to me wasteful to have that occupy an entire line by itself when really it's, it's uh, just contributing to almost the function um, like declaration itself right right it's almost like it's just qualifying it a little more yeah so a good uh it's actually really interesting to to look at the override annotation in java which is actually a modifier in kotlin and so in, in kotlin you write you write override you know fun whatever two string but in java that would be at override public string two string and so um, the, the Google Java style guide allows you to put that override annotation on the same line as the, you know, the public string to string method declaration. And so this is basically a very similar thing where, you know, the Kotlin language put override into uh, a soft keyword, like a modifier. Uh, but there's a whole slew of these that that you might also want to include, like test or inject uh, and so that's yeah that's really where this rule comes from is when you just have that one simple annotation that declares something that's that's almost part of the contract of the function or property itself that you can just put it on the same line as the declaration because it's almost part of the declaration and then if you get into more complex cases where you're actually adding multiple annotations and those annotations have arguments um, they they probably deserve their own line, uh, such as if you you know deprecate a function, you provide a a message, and you also provide maybe a replacement. Um, th that's quite a bit of information, and so it should be on its own line. So if I had like a butter knife on click listener, uh, that would have an argument. So I suppose I would sign an independent line, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. <laughs> some of these, right. you know, as strict as strict as these rules are meant to be, like we also assume some level of disobedience. <laughs> um, just, just like a good example is um, JetBrains code base in the in the actual Kotlin repository. They've been using two space. Oh wow! <laughs> and that's just that's just you know historical, right? They've always used two space. And so the cost of them reformatting every Kotlin file to four spaces right, right. is extremely high. There's, what, what's the benefit that they gain by doing that? And so ultimately, like, yep. you don't have to follow every single rule to a T. If you're writing a new code base, then it's probably a good idea. But if you have a mixed code base or an existing set of Kotlin files, um, you don't have to very aggressively and eagerly go and try and match all these rules. Uh, we're, we're really thinking long-term here that the benefits are long-term, not that everyone will, you know, make the switch tomorrow. Besides, what is life without a little civil disobedience, right? <laughs> Got to keep things a little spicy. So keep speaking of keeping things spicy, let's get to the <laughs> real important issue right here. So do we, and should we be using Hungarian notation? Well, thankfully, I actually don't even have to weigh in on this because <laughs> the, the language itself actively discourages you from using any kind of prefix. Hmm. If you if you write a property 
called mname, and you call that property from mm -hmm. Java, the method will be get capital M, capital N, A-M-E, which is super weird. And so there's really no place for something like Hungarian notation because, the lang because of how the language works. <laughs> so I do have a little... That, hey, that's fantastic to hear. I'm super excited about that because... Jake, you, you start off early in Android like I did, and you remember the early days of everything. All the sample code had M prefixes and it, all different kinds of Hungarian notation. So I'm glad to see that moved on. But the small little side story that I do have is that a couple episodes, I complained about Hungarian notation and was happy that it was gone and got an email from the our, through our website, uh, Fragmented Podcast, and it was Cedric be used. And Cedric used to work on the Android team and he wrote a blog post stating, I am the reason for Hungarian notation in Android. And so he wrote to say, you know, at the time, that's the decision that we made given uh, the situation that we're in and it is what it is, but now it is gone. But it's interesting if you kind of wonder where it came from, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, Cedric did write a blog post on um, why it was there and he was the reason it's there. So thanks again for writing in Cedric. Alrighty. Uh, I guess now we should shift to the interesting part of like the Android cartoon guides, which is the interop guide, right? And this is where like things really start to get interesting. In fact, I feel I learned so much. Like the other things are just rules per se. And so you just, eh, you follow them and, you know, things go. Uh, but the interop guide is where like, you know, a lot of juicy stuff like comes in. At least I learned a lot just looking at these guides. You sort of divided it into two portions, right? Like one, because interop obviously means uh, using Kotlin and Java and vice versa as well, right? So if you had to use uh, uh, Java in Kotlin. So can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so the the motivating factor here is that every new API that's being added to either the Android framework itself or the support libraries are going to be consumed from both languages by developers. And so there's a there was there's a strong need to have a set of rules that you can follow or interpret when you're writing these APIs to make sure that it actually feels nice from both languages. Uh, and so that that was the primary motivator for the Java to Kotlin part. Um, but also we assume that in the near future a lot of you know more libraries will be written in Kotlin first, and then there will still be people who are consuming them from uh, from Java. And so, to whoever is writing those libraries, there are also certain practices that you can follow to make the Kotlin code feel idiomatic from the Java side as well. And so that was the yeah that was the primary motivating factor uh, for why it's split. Uh, but yeah, the the writing Java for Kotlin is was really the most important one because we expect every new API that's written in Java to be able to be consumed from both languages. Quick aside question. If you wrote a library today, at least for your personal uh, benefit, would you write it in Kotlin or would you write it in Java? Or even like, you know, a public library, would you think about writing it in Kotlin? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Um, I, think, I think maybe. It, it really depends. But the... What, the way I like to um, frame this problem is we had a very similar situation with the support library about four years ago. So when the support library first came out, as a library author, you would never dream of adding a dependency on the support library because you didn't want to force your consumers 
to depend on the sport library. It was unthinkable. People would, you know, as soon as the library would come out with a dependency, the very first issue would be make this dependency optional. It shouldn't be required. <laughs> right, right. Now, and it makes sense. It, it made sense, at least at the time. It did. But yeah. now flash forward four years, and would you even bat an eye for a library <laughs> that had a dependency on multiple support libraries? Right, right, right. You wouldn't, because now they're they're so commonplace that, and everyone's already including them that you're not really paying any extra cost because you're pulling them in anyway. And so I think the Kotlin standard library is very similar to that, where you have people that are certainly already, you know, full Kotlin and pulling in the standard library for their own code, but you have a large majority of people that aren't yet. And so there will be some inflection point within the next probably year where it starts becoming acceptable to have that standard library dependency because so many people are doing it that you like the cost becomes shared. And so, yeah, right now it's definitely, uh, unless you're ready to draw that line in the sand and say like, I need Kotlin to accomplish this task for this library. Uh, I would probably not do it, but something's going to happen in the next six to 12 months where that starts becoming a thing that, that we can do. Right. I, that makes so much sense. I love the analogy yeah. with the support library, especially, right? Because if you're writing an app today with other support, support library, like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. Exactly. One of the things that's interesting in the interop guide is it, I think it's even right at the top. It is, it's, um, it says no hard keywords. Can you explain what that means? Sure. And why so it's important? Colin has a notion of both hard and soft keywords. And these are the things that you write like, if or class, um, when, try, uh, actually try might not be one. But the, the idea is these are the keywords baked into the language that have like very significant syntactical meaning. And because of that, you can't use them for things like names. You can't name a class class. You can't name a function if. And so um, the the keywords that Kotlin uses are actually different than the keywords that Java uses. And so you could potentially write a function in, you could write a method in Java that uses a Kotlin keyword such that when you consume it from Kotlin, you now have a problem because you can't actually write that keyword. Um, thankfully, the Kotlin language actually offers you an escape hatch, which is you can surround it with backticks. Uh, which is kind of like in saying interpret this as a as a name, not as a keyword. But ultimately, that's like a that's just a bad experience for the person writing the code in Kotlin. And so you really just want to avoid those keywords altogether. And since there's so few of them, uh, and a lot of them are actually repeated with Java, so, such that you can't use them anyway, um, we basically just categorically forbid them. I mean, infamously, though, if you're writing in Kotlin now and you do testing, Mokido has this problem, right? Uh, so in this case, there's no out, basically, but to use backticked uh, versions. Uh, so I guess the style is the style guide saying, hey, watch out for this and make sure you yeah. never have to do this, right? I guess that's the objective, right? 
Yeah, so if you were to write a new API, we would strongly, strongly recommend that you not use the name when. <laughs> uh, and actually, for the, for the Android code base, it's actually forbidden now. There's only one occurrence of a, a hard keyword in the entire Android and Sport Library code bases. Um, and it's actually, a, I believe it's on the notification object where it has a when field that's public, which is like the time of the notification. Oh. Um, but other than that, there's no other hard keywords. And there's actually an API check now that forbids anyone from adding any new ones. But in your Mokito testing, you still have to use when, right? I mean, like you have to use a backticked version, I presume. Yeah, so you could do that or, you know, you could use... Uh, you could use Kotlin to alias that function to something else. All right. So, Jake, in the interop guide, there's this notion of uh, defensive uh, copies, right? And uh, this one, like, threw me off a little because uh, there, uh, Kotlin does have the notion of, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say immutable properties, but, like, you know, it forces read-only properties. Uh, and in the guide, you explicitly sort of call this out and say, wrap it in unmodifiable containers, right? Can you tell us a little about this aspect and why it's important to do that? Or, I mean, why do I even need this? I thought, like, just marking something as val or something should just take care of this for me, right? Well, why, should, why is this something that you felt the need to call out in the interop guide? Yeah, so there's two parts to this. Uh, the, the val aspect, which is the read-only, uh, which doesn't actually mean that the value is immutable, it just means that the reference to whatever you're referencing won't change. Uh, and the other part is that for collections in Kotlin, it offers two versions of every collection, a immutable one and a mutable one. But the problem is that when it's running on something like the JVM or on Android, the language actually uses the same the same implementation of list regardless of whether you declared it as immutable or mutable. And so if you're referencing, you know, list or mutable list, it's always going to be backed by array list. Now, normally this isn't a problem when you just have Kotlin code calling Kotlin code because the language is preventing you from adding elements to a immutable list. But when you end up returning a list to in a public API where someone from Java could then get a reference to it, Java's list interface has mutator methods on it. And so they can very easily go and try and add an element to this list and it will actually succeed, which then violates the you know, contract that you defined from the Kotlin side you said that this is an immutable list and then you return it to Java and then someone mutates it out from under you. So the, yeah, the important thing here is that whenever you're returning a list in a, in a public API where you are certain or there's a possibility that someone will be consuming it from Java, you should wrap it in an, un, you know, collections.unmodifiable list so that or just take a defense, you know, make a defensive copy, um, so that if someone from Java chooses to modify that collection, it won't actually violate what you expect from the Colin side. Got it. So if you make a defensive copy, then you're just saying, hey, if you want to change it, go ahead, and like you know, you probably it'll probably blow up, or like you know, the responsibility is on the consumer. But at least you know because you've returned a defensive copy, 
it won't change under you, so the library is safe. But if you use the collections unmodifiable list, in that case, you're sort of enforcing it uh, all, all around, right? Saying like, hey, this is not meant to be changed. Don't change yeah, it. Yeah, and then if they try to, they'll get an exception. Um, now, there's two there's two other ways that you can do this. Um, if you use something like Guava, it has its own version of an immutable list, uh, which actually will prevent mm-hmm. people from modifying it no matter what language they're in. Oh, interesting. Okay. But um, the JetBrains folk are actually also working on something called uh, Kotlin X. Uh, Kotlin immutable. I think it's called. Um, which is their own implementation of a a properly oh. immutable list. Oh, that's fascinating. Right. So this is true immutability being brought in. Right. Right. So by default, Kotlin just uses these facade interfaces to present immutability in the language, but in the runtime, everything's still mutable. Uh, and so what this library would allow is is true immutability, both in the API and also at runtime. Oh, that's fascinating! I had no idea about that. Do you know what timeline that's on? Um, they no, it's um, it's still in like a zero dot x oh, release. Um, okay, but yeah, it's uh, it the advantage again is that you don't have to worry about this problem now if you're doing interop between languages. One of the things that's probably the most amazing thing that I've run into when working with JVM interop and Kotlin is the annotation JVM overloads. Oh, so good. So good. (laughs) When I first saw it slapped on a method, I didn't really understand what it did, and then I kind of dug into it, and it kind of had one of those whole mind-blowing effects. Would you mind explaining what JVM overloads is for the folks that maybe are not The Kotlin language has uh, some features that aren't available in Java, one of which is default values for function parameters. So if you have um, if you have a method that takes two arguments, where the second one is an integer, and you you know sometimes you want to not specify it and just default it to zero, you can do that and put that in its API so that when it's called from Kotlin, the caller only has to specify the first argument. Now the problem is that if you want to do the same thing from Java. Java does not have this functionality. It requires explicit overloads for every you know version of the method that you want to call. And so there's a annotation, JVM overloads, which basically creates those synthetic um, versions of the method where the default values, any default argument is essentially removed and you're provided with multiple copies of the method so that you can call it with a subset of the arguments. Now, the, there's a caveat with this, which is that it only works from left to right. Ah. And so your your arguments with default values need to be the rightmost arguments. Oh, got it. Yeah. Which, oh, so if you, if you didn't have, if you had on the left, then it wouldn't basically work. So then you're not going to necessarily override the right, call the correct version of the overridden method, right? It has to necessarily be. Well, yeah, um, I mean, sort of. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should take a step back, but the, one of the problems <laughs> is that it's it's not entirely a replacement for something like a builder, is what I should say. 
Okay. Yeah, where that makes sense. That makes perfect it's sense. It's not like the cross product of all potential arguments. And so if you if you want to pass only like the first argument and the fourth argument to a function, JVM overloads is not going to generate a method which only has those two arguments. Where you know you can pass the first and the fourth, and then the middle two and three are the default values. Uh, and so you don't get to just pick and choose which arguments. It's always going to progressively add elements from the left. And so if if you're designing the API, you just have to be aware that this is how it works. Um, but when you're able to use it, it's extremely convenient because of that uh, because of that feature. That that makes perfect sense. I think the way you worded it, right? It, this is not a replacement for builder. Like you know, yeah. So it actually puts some uh, API designers have to be additionally careful, like you said, right? Because you could make the API very friendly for consumption by you know using the sense pushing the sensible defaults to the right. Uh, yeah, that can like make the API much more nicer. And you all, the nice thing is that you always have the option of specifying manual overloads yourself. Mm. And so if, if for some reason it's not doing the right thing or you can't get the right combinations based on what or, you know the order that you want the arguments in, you can always fall back to just adding the overloads yourself. All right, Jake, if folks want to reach out to you or you know if folks want to like talk about the Android Kotlin guides, if they have suggestions, if they have anything that they want to reach out for, What's a good way to do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jake Wharton. And if you do have something that you want to contribute to these guides, please file an issue. And I would you know, love to center any discussion around changes or improvements on the actual GitHub uh, issue list for the guides. Yeah, we'll do. And Don, if folks want to find out about the new annotations you have discovered, what's a good place? <laughs> you can reach me at uh, Twitter at Don Felker. And Kaushik, if folks want to see your Kotlin magic, where do they reach you? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Kaushik Gopal is the best way to reach me. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Jake, as always, thank you so much for your time. And obviously, all the side stuff that you do for, for us Android developers. Thanks for having me again. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. We will catch you in the next episode. Once again, we want to thank Rollbar for sponsoring today's show. With Rollbar's error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix your bugs faster. We have a special offer for fragmented listeners. Go to rollbar.com fragmented, sign up, and get their bootstrap plan for free. Thanks again, Rollbar. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. Sarah the Amazing Jackson from the Spec Network helps with production assistance and wraps our final mix. Our theme and ad music is by the national recording artist Blueprint from Weightless Recordings. You can find more fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.